Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined here in the MMU Journalism Newsroom by my colleagues Dave Porter and Jeremy Craddock. Hello. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. And hi, Dave. Hi, Pete. And uh, there is some election planning going on in the background, so there might be a little bit of intervention from some of the students and staff who are doing that in the background. But we have a busy show today. We'll hear in a moment from Abbas Panjwani at the Full Fact Organisation about how artificial intelligence can play a role in sniffing out dodgy use of stats and correcting errors by reporters. And uh, and Dave, you've you've got your own guest as well today, haven't you? Yes, uh, last week, uh, well, in fact, I've been speaking to Rebecca Day from the MEN, the Manchester Evening News. Uh, she's been a live news, breaking news reporter, uh, and one of them, she's been explaining to students, she came in to speak to them and also um, spoke to her. Bang to write about how she and other MEA journalists uh, have a cover fast-moving stories, uh, use live blogs, social media. She talked about the using uh, Facebook Live uh, and just what we'd call, you know, on-the-spot reporting, how it works in the digital age. And um, and she also talked about the ethics of it, actually, which is quite yeah. interesting. So, yeah, yeah. yeah really good. So um, we'll look forward to that. that. That's coming up later on in the programme. Before we come to that, Jez, Dave, uh, well, Jez, what, what have you been looking at in the news so far this week? Yeah, something that caught my eye was... Um, it was a report of the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Burnett, who I think had been speaking to journalism students at Plymouth, and um, he was just talking about his regret that um, court reporting seems to be, you know, uh, if not dying out, certainly uh, weakened, um, you know, in the courts around the country, and the sort of the art and craft of court reporting seems to be not what it was and it's a shame because uh, in the sense of justice it's it's not being represented and the public isn't uh, being made aware of the, the sort of cases that are going through the courts and he, he felt that was a, a retrograde step really. Did he have any suggestions about how newspapers or news organisations might address any of that? Not that, from what I saw I didn't really see what, if, he, if he had any views on that but he obviously recognised the uh, you know cutbacks that newspapers are, are facing and obviously news teams just don't have the resources to send people to courts unless it's a, a particularly high profile case that gets all the attention you know the nationals are interested in it but it's just that day-to-day court reporting bread and butter stuff that's just not not appearing in in newspapers really yeah yeah regular listeners to the podcast will know it's something that we've we've come back to time and again mm. and there is that there's that um project that was being run from the university of the west of england where they were looking at um the the, the state of court reporting so they are due to have another re- inter- they, they had their interim report a couple of months back and we had them on the show yeah you may remember but we'll yes. come back to that because they did say they were going to be doing some more research work including on the courts here at manchester and Salford yes. so um, they did promise that they would be issuing some more of that stuff in the new year so we'll come back to that hopefully in the next season as well not that they will have any answers I don't think either they're they're just cataloging how like Lord Burnett found how the, the reporting level has gone down and yes. down and down but yeah. it's something certainly that you know I was at the NCTJ conference last week in Sunderland something that a lot of people were talking about there and the the new wave of local democracy reporters, for example, whether they will begin to address some of that deficit as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's something that, that could receive some kind of, in the way local democracy reporting has, has received that kind of government backing, whether there's, you know, something that could be similarly done for... I think it has court, been it's suggested that... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and also I think something that was in the Cairncross review as yes, well that maybe this is something that we should be. Yeah. 
anyway, we'll we'll look at that. We will certainly come back to that. And I think probably next next year when we mm. when we come back um, um, after the after the holiday and after after all the marking. But we'll come on to that in a moment <laughs> later on in the podcast. Dave, you and I we've been looking at the decision from Ofcom. I've got a copy here. Decision of the Election Committee on a due impartiality complaint brought by the Conservative Party in relation to Channel 4's Channel 4's news climate debate, the 28th of November 2019. Um, So what was all this about? Um, Ice blocks. The Iceman cometh. The Iceman cometh, yeah. Maybe it doesn't cometh in this case. I suppose the decision to, you know, I I kept thinking of how I got news for you and the... uh, the Look at Floyd or Rohatisley and the, you know, absent guess, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, And the decision by... Uh, so it's okay to use a block of ice instead of an empty chair now, according to Ofcom, because basically they've they've said that Channel Four behaved themselves that it wasn't yeah, just a, no. a an anti-Tory stunt, which I think was the allegation that came from well more than a hundred complaints. I think Ofcom yeah. said that they've had yeah. about that that particular program. They put up Michael Gove as an alternative, but that wasn't. He's he's was not a party leader, so no. they said no, he's got yeah. no place here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, don't, I think it was. I think it was a third decision and a sensible one. And you know, there has been much kind of talk of uh, senior sources saying, "Well, just wait till we get in, and um, maybe Channel Four's license will be looked at." Um, but I think Channel Channel Four, and they they've taken a strong lead on on pushing environmental matters. So, and I think they really made a play for saying, "Look, we need everyone here." So, um, given the Tories, you know record on putting people up or not, yeah. then I think it was a fair, you know, kind of Maybe well, maybe it does cheeky. look like, yeah, there's a bit of an ongoing problem, really, with yeah. it, with Boris Johnson's attendance <coughs> at these kind of things, because yeah. the BBC is still angling for him to come and yes, do an yeah. interview with Andrew Neil to try and balance out the, the absolute pasting that Jeremy Corbyn got at, yeah. at the hands of Andrew Neil last yeah, week. Sure. So they need, to, they need to try and balance that out, for actually for strict impartiality rules, because mm-hmm. they can't give one party leader a mm-hmm. hammering and then leave the other one to yeah. get off scot-free, really. No, I think it was yeah. a good decision by uh, Ofcom. And they also made the point, actually, which is uh, useful for, for the future, I guess. They, they noticed that Christian Guru Murthy regularly quoted Conservative Party policy on the environment yes. and made a point yeah. of highlighting that. It was so that they, in that respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that was an important point in, in their judgment, uh, the Ofcom decision there from, from last week. So, so yeah... Um, well, we, there will almost certainly be more election stuff that will come up. We've still got a week to go before yeah. polling day, just over a week. We're recording on Wednesday afternoon, so we've got a little bit of time. We'll certainly keep an eye on that. We will have, we'll come to our election coverage at, uh, towards the end of the podcast. Yeah. But if there are any other, other issues that come up, anything that you think we should be covering as part of um, maybe next week's podcast or our election coverage, please do contact us on Twitter at RightsBang. And we'll see if we can incorporate that into into the overnight election coverage um, when that starts next week. Um, but Dave, we've we've had we've, so we've got a couple of guests uh, on the on the show this week, and including. Well, a kind of a former student of mine, really, Rebecca Day, who, uh-huh. who was at Glasgow uh, Caledonian University, and now she's at the Manchester Evening News she and doing is. very, very well there. Uh, and it was just nice, obviously, I, for the students, for her to come in and have a chat with her because you can't. Uh, Obviously, forecast when breaking news is going to take place, you know. So, nice to get her in. I mean, I began asking Rebecca if there is such a thing as, you know, a typical day for her, how that might start at the NN office and, and how she reacts and the team reacts to breaking news. We had an incident quite recently, um, obviously, with a stabbing at the Arndale Centre. She, she talked the students through that. Um, so, really interesting chat. 
so I'd come in and I would basically I might immediately be sent out on a scene if, for oh. example if there's a breaking news incident I, I'd go out on that I would typically probably spend a couple of hours there say if there's you know been a fire or, mm-hmm. or, or a crash or something like that I also would would write features, kind of more weekend features. I, I might okay. go out and interview somebody for for a feature on a particular topic. Um, so more kind of long read style. I also cover courts, uh-huh. a bit of inquests, um, or, you know, and, and other kind of general sure. jobs within the newsroom. So there might yeah. be kind of smaller incidents that I would write write about and, and contact police yeah. about. So so you know, and, and keep an eye on break news as well so okay. it could be pretty varied yeah. a, a shift and because we're a media law podcast and we talk about ethics are there any particular ethical when you're going out on a live breaking news um you know operation are there any particular ethical issues that you have to take uh, you have to think about the forefront of your mind maybe mm. people have been injured or the children i don't know does that come into your yeah definitely orbit? so so for example you know if we were to arrive at the scene of a crash uh-huh. you wouldn't you know take pictures of people who were injured without their knowledge or anything like that you um if if somebody had died you'd you'd have to make sure that the next of kin had been informed and before you would you would kind of um, post about that as you said with children we wouldn't tend to kind of speak to to children unless we've got consent from the adults you know especially for something distressing or about their well-being um so yeah there's all all these things that you've got to think about when you do arrive at a scene and what's the most uh, difficult thing about breaking news? Is it the verification, just literally finding out the facts of the case? Because uh, yeah. obviously you're under pressure to get uh, news out as quick as possible, obviously on, on social media and let people know what's happening. But you've, presumably you've got to take a step back, first of all, and just see see what the facts are. Yeah, definitely. That's probably the hardest bit because, say, for example, you know, your priority is to get it out as soon as possible, but you know police might take the time might want mm. to kind of spend longer kind of verifying the facts and and so you've kind of got that time pressure as well as yeah. waiting to hear back from them so you've got to kind of keep mm-hmm. almost the pressure on them to, yeah. so you can hear backs and um yeah and, and not speculating too much because sure. obviously that can be quite dangerous yeah. um also another difficult part of a breaking news incident is uh, being able to speak to people at the scene you know mm. you, you've got to get voices you know people who who have been affected by perhaps something. in shock or, or, or yeah, yeah exactly whatever. so you need that you know that kind of color or you know those personal experiences mm. of an incident is really important and do you uh presume you, you, you develop a good relationship with the, the police when you get there do you get any special uh not any special privileges but certainly they recognize who you are and help you uh, to some degree it or? depends <laughs> a lot of the time police officers i don't know you know whether or not they're telling the truth but they would say they would say that you know they've, they've just been sent there and they don't know what the incident's about and they're just waiting yeah. in accord and uh, i'm not sure if that's what they've been told to say uh-huh. but that's what you often come across you you also do get you know some some officers might tell you, you know especially if you know say for example i've got a good relationship with traffic police so uh-huh. quite often if they are at the scene then they'll kind of tell me the basic details yeah. about it and so so it, it depends where you go but mm-hmm. you know they, they very often tell you to go to the press office so yeah, sure. that's another kind of barrier okay. sometimes yeah good and do you tend to go out on your own or do, i mean are you responsible for producing all the content from the scene or do you go out in twos or it depends how big the job yeah, is yeah it, it depends how big the job is 
so you might be sent with a photographer. Oh, mm-hmm. but but it would it would only generally be one reporter unless yes. okay. it is a big breaking news yes. incident. Then you know it would be rare for you to have two reporters. But generally, sure. it's just you. You know, and if there's not a photographer free, or if it's not deemed a major incident, then you know you might have to take pictures yourself or very of often when we're tweeting we're taking pictures yes, we're doing yes. videos and and so you kind of have to do all of it really you're seen as quite uh-huh. a multimedia of journalist course, yeah, and yeah. you know so and it might be that you've got a photographer as well but you know you've you've got to get those pictures out so well. you can be there for what half a day or something or a few hours you could yeah, yeah you can be there all day depending of course um you know when there was the moorland fires we, we were uh-huh. there you know day Stationed. in day out <laughs> station there yeah, yeah exactly so it's, yeah as I say it depends you know generally if kind of a cordon's mm. been lifted somewhere right. you might then go back to the office but yeah. it depends really and does it uh, affect your working day I mean in the sense of sorry are you on a shift or are you on call all the time if something happens at two in the morning is there somebody else to mm. a big fire for example or late yeah. on a Friday night that that that's quite rare uh-huh. they they wouldn't tend to no. your news us wouldn't tend to call you at 2am um but you might be expected to stay later depending how big it just is just finish the job um, off yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah so but you know yeah yeah because you you know sometimes breaking sometimes you can have lots of stuff in during the day barely anything happens but mm. then suddenly in the evening you've got very few stuff and there's a stabbing and there's yes. a you know a, a big fire and sure. you know so and you're spinning plates and sometimes they ask you to come in you know mm. like the the fire in the Bolton student flats of course flats, yeah. they were ask, so you could be with, uh, obviously with, it's not just Manchester city centre you could be anywhere in the ten boroughs I suppose yeah you could be travelling out to yeah. Wigan or yeah. Tameside or Stockport so you are you in the car all the time? I presume traveling out. And yeah, about? I'm in the car a lot. Yeah, yes. you do need to drive basically to do the job. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it would be very often that I'd be on the road, and you, you know, very often you've you've got to be flexible. So you you don't know where you might end up. Mm-hmm. You know, during the day. So it could be that you you're driving out to Wigan, as you say. So you know yeah it's across the ten borough so yeah. it can literally be anything okay, that we're good, called good. to yeah and you mentioned so you do other stuff as well obviously we, we we and me and pete when we took some students to uh coroner's court last summer we saw you there actually mm. and it was a big case i think did it go on for three days um yeah. or two or three days so what what's what was that like covering something that it's good to see actually that you know the men and other publications invest because uh, three days for one story is not time effective, but it's good mm. to see. It was a very interesting story, wasn't it? And, yeah. Um, it's good to see we're still covering quests in that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's very important. It's kind of, you know, it's about, you know, it's it's kind of a, it's on record what's happened. It's mm. important to kind of, you know, if there were failings to kind of sure. be able to um to discuss that and you know that's why inquests are so important so if it is kind of a big story like that mm-hmm. then they would you know so, so they would send you out to you know sometimes we would cover something you know crown court in liverpool if yep. if there was somebody involved from our region or you know london so and you did yeah, have lots would... of pictures with that so you'd be expected to yeah uh, our students we always tell them after an inquest you know make contact with the family exactly yeah it's not what you did and yeah they may find it quite intimidating but yeah exactly so yeah you might go and go through their lawyer and ask if, if they want to or, or you might directly approach them but yeah very often you would you, you'd you know a, a picture is very important as well so to kind of be able to get that from the mm-hmm. family and their consent and it might even be that you you know you find a picture on social media and you just go up to them and say are you happy if we use this picture yeah. and then if they say yes then that's yeah. 
and that's good um or they might even you know very often families want to release a tribute or want mm. to kind of you know give their opinion on the findings of the uh-huh. coroner so it is good to keep and are most families uh, receptive to your approach um it's it's very mixed i think you know for, for a lot of families it's too overwhelming and uh-huh. the experience itself is mm-hmm. just um, too distressing and so they can't actually the yeah is, exactly so yeah. very often i mean you know very rarely have ever kind of been told where to go type thing you know mm. very often it's just that so they say, say no. that to you yeah to say yeah. no okay. and uh but you know you know some people mm. have kind of wanted to pay tribute sure. so yeah. you never really know what you're gonna yeah get. i've covered many inquests myself in my time and mm. and i was going to say as well presumably obviously you know we always talk about multimedia digital journalism but actually you know going back to the old skills presumably yeah, you used exactly. your short hand i did use my short hand yeah, you know get a yeah. plug in for short hand definitely um, still a major skill uh oh totally for if, if you want to be a, a, a news reporter and and you you know which in which you have to cover a variety mm-hmm. of different stories then you would need shorthand because you have to go to court you have to yeah. go to um inquests and you, you, you that's the only way basically sure. is it to, yeah. to be able to get it down you know if, if you want to be a, i don't know if you do want to be like a celebrity reporter or, or something else then you know maybe it's okay but, yeah, but for, news. If you, if you, for, for news you need those skills definitely yeah, yeah good and uh well that's been great actually it gives us real insight into you know your working life and yeah. uh, thanks very much rebecca for coming no in worries. and uh if any students have any questions about that they can listen in and send us to the podcast of course yeah Rebecca Day from the MEN, and I think the students got a lot from her from her coming here. And actually, I think she she genuinely enjoyed um, coming to, to speak to I the think students so. as well. And it just gives the students an insight into you know um, what it's like to be a, the demands in a working journalist. I think they were quite shocked by asking about her shifts and what time she, how late she stayed, <laughs> and the demands of the job and how long you have to stay on the job, uh, and also how much she got paid yeah. was interesting. So it's great to have you know people like Rebecca coming in and just give fresh pair of their eyes for them yeah yeah so um do do look at rebecca's reporting work uh, on the men website mm-hmm. or, or or in the men itself um if you get the paper version of that and you can follow um rebecca um on twitter she's at rebecca day which is all one word rebecca day m-e-n and uh yeah if you want to keep up with with a live breaking story um yeah. becca's work's really really good uh, example of that so yeah thanks again to to becca for coming in remember you're listening to bang to write podcast from the journalism department of manchester metropolitan university you can contact us uh, on twitter at rights bang now when many of us heard of the stories last year about robots taking over the jobs of journalists at the press association combined with wider worries about artificial intelligence taking from human brain power all sorts of alarm bells started ringing not least the fears about twitter bots the manipulation of elections and all that stuff But there's one organisation which has begun experimenting with machine learning and AI as a way of fact-checking, verifying and correcting stories that rely heavily on statistics and public data. The London-based charity Full Fact has been running since the middle of the decade and is currently heavily focused on election-related stories, checking the facts and stats in everything from manifestos and candidate speeches to how news organisations are using opinion polls and surveys. I met one of Full Facts researchers, Abbas Panjwani, at the annual conference last week of the National Council for the Training of Journalists. Now, Abbas was speaking on a panel of other journalists looking at how they came into the profession. So, on the fringes of the conference in Sunderland, Abbas told me that he was drawn into working in this area because of his previous job in the civil service. 
So after university, I worked for agencies and then the civil service uh, on research projects, basically policy development, policy evaluation. So it was quite statistically statistical, lots of interrogating of data and analysis. So after I did my NTTJ part-time, uh, whilst I was still a civil servant, I then saw this job posting a few months after I left and it seemed to combine my two skill sets of being able to write in a clean journalistic sense but also having an eye for the detail of statistics and being able to separate fact from fiction. And do you, you presumably you still use that kind of statistical understanding of, of stuff now, do you? Do you still work? Because you're, you're, you're looking at numbers and looking at facts and so on, yeah? Yeah. Um, at Full Fact, we look at claims that are widespread and try to identify if there's any misinformation there. Statistics, uh, sorry. Statistics have always been an important way for the public to understand what is going on in the country at a wider level than their own anecdotal information. And statistics are often used as PR lines or attack lines by political parties. So a lot of our work is interrogating the quality of those statistics and finding out what the real numbers are. That's not to say all of our work is statistical. There's a big strain of what you would call claim-based, you know, uh, there's a big strain of claims that are based on readings of legal texts or, uh, for example, a lot of the work we do on uh, with Facebook, which we might talk about, is to do with health information. So what vaccines do they cause different you know, diseases or ailments? So it's not all statistical, but a lot of our political work is on statistical information. Tell me a bit about how you get to those stories, which stories you interrogate, which stories you investigate. Do they, do they come from in the form of complaints for the, from the public or are they things that you, you yourselves notice uh, in, the, in the newsroom, in the full facts office and think, right, we need to look into this? So in terms of p picking stories, we will look at what is of most importance. So we look at the spread of a story first and foremost. There might be something completely incorrect being said on a, some blog somewhere but if no one is reading it the, the threat of misinformation is very small so we will look at big news programs the papers and in terms of how we identify whether there might be misinformation or not sometimes it will come just from our own familiarity with the subject matter so we know that there are problems with certain types of statistical data sets that are recurrent and so when those sorts of stories crop up again and again, we can quite easily say, no, this is the same thing again. But a lot of it just comes from, yeah, getting the raw data files actually going beyond the press release. And quite often there is something wrong with the data, but sometimes there isn't. And that's just part of the process, really. Um, and so once you've got to that stage that you've, you've scrutinized the data or you've looked at a press release and thought, well, it's okay, but it's, you know, it could be corrected here or there, what's, what's the next stage then? How do you kind of get the message out that this or that data set or this or that story is, isn't right? So sometimes we will work with the journalist who wrote the story or the p political uh, press office or whichever press office put it out to understand where their data came from and what exactly they've analysed. And sometimes we will pose those questions to them. So, did you consider this or why haven't you considered that? 
A lot of the time, however, we will just write the story up because we're confident in our understanding of the issue or we've contacted experts and we can effectively counter that narrative. And then we go back to newspapers and say, look, we've written this piece. We basically always want to approach them with our take, with our final take before we ask for remedy. And then we will try and get corrections and clarifications in newspapers. But I think really we understand that we don't have a massive audience, so if a newspaper publishes a front page story that's incorrect, we know, obviously for certain, that our response to it is not going to be read by as many people as read the original, even if it is corrected, even if it's a front page correction. But what we hope to do is to force change in newsrooms and in political party operations so they know and it might have just been a genuine mistake it may have just been carelessness or not even carelessness but you know something else that went wrong that they can remedy in the future or if it was a deliberate act of misinformation getting across to them that people are looking at this and they will be called out yeah, yeah so you're watching them that's part of the message you're watching them yeah yeah i mean we already have obviously ipso and legal processes to deal with accuracy issues and misinformation but often those are quite timely and you can't do that with every story that is wrong or needs more clarity so I suppose we sort of bridge that gap between uh, people maybe just commenting on Twitter that something might be wrong and a full-blown kind of ipso case we are providing something that is well thought out well reasoned but can also be published in a day and get quite quick and direct action and perhaps more proportionate. Now tell me what, about one of the, the big jobs that you have, which is working with Facebook um, and, and checking material that's on Facebook and then flagging it up. Tell me a little bit about that process. Sure. So Facebook works with independent fact-checking organisations across the world uh, to look at things that could potentially be sources of misinformation on their platform. So essentially what Facebook does is it has an algorithm that essentially tries to estimate what the level of misinformation risk could be. So that's a mixture of how much is this public, and it's all public posts, so we never check someone's private posts, we can't, um, or even a post in a group that we could get access to, that never happens. So Facebook will show us a queue of uh, posts that have high engagement and high shareability but have also been flagged as wrong. People can flag public posts on Facebook to say I think there's something wrong with this or Facebook also can do textual analysis of comments to say okay it looks like people are questioning this and we basically will check um, those stories, write them up as we do other things and if we find them to be false or partly false um, well regardless of what we find we will then attach our fact check to that post and sometimes to identical posts elsewhere if it's like an image or and if it's false the circulation of that post will be decreased by a substantial degree on everyone else's public feeds and everyone who shared the post will get a notification saying there's additional reporting on this so this is really useful for non-political work lots of people don't talk about politics especially on well, lots of people talk about politics on Facebook, but lots of people talk about lots of other things. So health misinformation, misinformation about brands is quite big. Or there's this kind of uh, thing, feeling that there's uh, this ingredient in this brand's products that is unsanitary or whatever, and we might look into that. So there's a huge range of different things. Um, but that provides quite a direct action to people who have been sharing that so they can understand what the truth of the matter is.
So it's not the most obvious stuff, because you would think like political stories would be the ones that people might kind of attract most attention and where the, there's most misinformation, but it's, it's wider than that, you reckon? Yes, I mean, I think the post that I've personally looked at on Facebook that had the most shares was about parking fines. It's kind of quite mundane, but it was basically saying, this is Martin Lewis's advice on parking fines. Now, Martin Lewis must be the third most trusted man in the UK, or third most trusted person in the UK after David Attenborough and the Queen. So to kind of claim that this really trusted person is saying you do not need to pay these parking fines when that wasn't what he said. He did say something around the difference between council issued parking fines and um, private uh, car parking notices. Um, and there is a difference, and we explain that in our piece, but to just tell and have 700,000 shares on something that could get quite a lot of people into quite a lot of financial difficulty is a big problem, and that's actually quite a useful thing to do. Financial harm is as bad, well, financial harm is bad, a bad is a, you know, form of misinformation, as well as people not knowing what's going on in the country with the employment rate or something more political. But we do check a lot of political information on Facebook as well, if it's posted by, you know, members of the public who go viral because they've put out some sort of little graphic that's incorrect. We do check that as well. I want to move on just one, one thing. We were talking, we were talking off mic before um, about you, the, the kind of tech involved in some of this stuff um, and particularly artificial intelligence and the role that artificial intelligence is beginning to play play in this fact-checking operation but what it might do in the future and and I guess some of the stuff that you're doing is pretty much at the cutting edge of all of that Could tell me a bit about the sorts of machine learning and artificial intelligence um, tools that you're able to use just now and what where they might go in the, in the near future so you're right to say yes we have a super brilliant tech team who develop software apps um, often funded by tech companies to essentially improve the speed and quality of fact-checking. Where we are now is that we can take a bunch of text, live transcribe, either using subtitles from a TV program or recognition of you know, voices and transcription, automatic transcription that way. And we can identify when politicians make claims that we have previously looked at and we can say then in real time whether they are right or wrong. So we can identify the key bits in that sentence if someone is saying employment up 4% since 2012. We have the tools at the moment to be able to analyze that sentence and say yes or no based on previous work we've done. What we're moving into and what is the really big challenge is how to live automatically fact check things that we've not specifically looked at before and that requires machine learning and artificial intelligence that we are developing and have some successful forays into. So for example, with the data that comes from the Office for National Statistics, some of that is available through an API, which means that even if we haven't checked specifically this claim about manufacturing GDP or whatever it might be, or over a specific time period that we've not looked at, our tools can allow us to instantly look at that. But obviously the Office for National Statistics is, is, is a big statistical producer, naturally, but does not produce everything. And so the challenge for us, uh, and it's not an easy one, and it's not one that's going to be picked, uh, solved quickly, is how to use machine learning to be able to 
identify as many claims as we can in text and check as many of them as possible with a degree of accuracy as well. That's the, that's the key point. We don't want people to take that as gospel with it. Yeah. until it can be trusted to do that. But presumably there would be stories, I mean the one that comes to mind immediately, we're recording this on Friday the 29th and so a couple of days ago the Office for National Statistics released um, migration figures for example, very very contentious in this election and in previous elections but presumably once those figures are out the, 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 the tool could scrutinise that fairly quickly and say yes this, this politician is telling the truth here, this politician is not. Yes, I'm not entirely sure if migration is in the API, but let's assume it is. Yeah. The challenge then is the human judgment of whether, even if someone is accurate, that is what people need to know. So a big thing with migration data, which is a really good example, is people talk about the gross migration figure and it's sometimes conflated with population. And the issue here is, yes, you might be technically right that that is the gross migration figure, but really the population change is affected by the net migration figure. There's a lot of people leaving the country every year. There's a lot more who are coming to the country. But arguably, if you want to talk about, for example, the pressure on NHS services or whatever it might be by arguing that the population is booming, using the gross migration figures may be a slightly misleading way of getting that point across. And that's really where humans are still useful. And I still hope to have the job in 10 years' time. Well, I very much hope that you do as well. So, Abbas Panjani, thanks very much indeed for, for, for coming on Bank to Rights. All the best. Thanks very much for having me. Abbas Panjwani, and I'll put a link to the full fact web page on automatic fact checking into the show notes. It makes some really fascinating reading. But before we wind up for today, Dave, Jez, we're heading into the marking season and assessments. But what's coming up for the students in the next couple of weeks, Dave? Well, only got two weeks to go. We've got to tomorrow for my second years and uh, a mini mock test and lots of revision, I think, ultimately. You know, we've done the big heavy lifting this term, contempt, juveniles, defamation, copyright, so they've really got to get the, uh, get the key principles together, the definitions, because next week it's the assessments. <coughs> so hopefully lots of scenarios and hopefully lots of people armed with knowledge who've done tons of revision. Yes. <laughs> Same for the level sixes. In fact, we had a really good revision session yesterday and we could see that students have been engaging with their revision, a lot of embedded knowledge, so hopefully they'll be able to demonstrate that and apply their knowledge in the, uh, the assessment next week. Um, and then looking ahead to next year, next term, uh, law and ethics will be moving on to the kind of the, the ethical way you conduct yourself as a journalist, looking at things like fake news, verification of sources, all that sort of thing. So some really good stuff to look forward to next term. Yeah, so I've got with, with the postgrads, um, they've got their, their assessment for this term and that includes um, a report on their two visits to, uh, to, to Magistrates Court and Crown Court. So I'm really looking forward to reading that to see what they made of it and what sort of things they, they're, they'd be looking at, you know, whether it was jury trials or the kind of summary nature of what goes on in magistrate's court, a whole lot of things about sentencing and so on. So very much looking forward to that. And then, Dave, you and I swap roles with the, the postgrads for next term. So you're taking on some of the issues around copyright and ethics, and then I'll be taking over with the, with the second years yes. doing the same kind of thing about regulation and ethics and so on with them. It's, it's good, you know, obviously, the way we teach, I think, uh, it gives the students a different uh, slant on, on the long we reach, bring different uh, aspects to it. Yeah.
Now, all of that means, of course, we're, because we're coming into the, the marking season, we're, it means that we're coming to, to the, an end to the current run of the podcast. We'll be taking a break over Christmas during the marking season, but we will be back again in the new year. We'll be producing some material, as I mentioned at the top of the programme. We'll be producing some stuff around the general election next week. So do check out what our students are working on in the run-up to polling day on the Northern Quota website. And do watch out for the overnight reporting from the election counts around Greater Manchester and beyond on Thursday night and Friday morning. Dave, so you're, you're going to be covering I'll one be of the in, counts. Uh, Oldham, well, two counts, Oldham West uh, and Oldham East, two separate ones. And it's very much a late night up in Oldham, but I don't think there'll be too many surprises, really. But I'll be there, so watch out for my at Dave Porter DP, my Twitter handle. Okay, and we'll also have a number of other reports from from around the place. Um, I'll be with some students at the at the count in central Manchester, which will take in the the five Manchester City um, counts. We'll also have reporters in uh, in Salford um, covering the two counts there, and we've got other reporters elsewhere. I think in Lee and Wigan. Uh, a number of other a number of other places. I'm I'm just looking over at Liz Hannaford, who's just totaling yeah. everything up. Come over and have a quick word with us, Liz, about what's what's yeah, happening. Yeah, pretty good this year. So we've also got a candidate who is going to be covering the two Warrington counts, north and south. And Lee, you've already mentioned, and we've just found out we've got a candidate who's going to be in the Berry South constituency oh, yes. count yeah. as well, which is great because one of our MMU lecturers mm. is standing there. So that will be one that we'll definitely want to watch. And, um, oh, and I've just seen a note as well, actually. Owen Jones from The Guardian, I think, is going to be in Berry South on really? Saturday. So I will jump up there. It's just a tram, couple of tram stops away from me. Yeah. I'll go and see if we can bag an interview with, with Owen and uh, we'll get that onto the Northern Quarter and maybe have a special edition of the website, of, of uh, the, the podcast as well. But yeah, definitely, uh, definitely one to keep an eye on the Berry South. Yeah, we're working on some preview pieces as well. We're getting a piece um, looking at the constituencies to really keep an eye out in the northwest because we've got a lot of safe seats that we're going to be covering overnight but if you look wider at the northwest there are some really interesting battles shaping up which we'll be we'll be previewing so people know what to look out for in the night and how to time their uh, overnight election coverage and we're also going to be trying um, Instagram stories as well as a way of keeping people up to date with all the breaking news and the fun behind the scenes stuff overnight as well we might even experiment with tiktok i don't know (laughs) scary scary times scary times well that's going to be interesting so do do check out what's what's on the northern quota as i said in the run-up to election day and run-up to polling day next thursday and then um uh in the you know in the hours overnight and on friday morning we'll be doing a kind of autopsy i think as well on, on the election result remember to tweet us at rights bang if there are issues you'd like us to cover in future episodes in 2020 do remember to subscribe to bang to rights search for us on apple podcasts or on stitcher and we'll drop straight into your podcast feed you'll also find us on the northern quota soundcloud feed that's all one word mmu northern quota and a couple of students have also suggested to me that we get the podcast onto spotify so i'll aim to get that done before we come back in january in the meantime we have been bang to rights thanks dave thanks pete thanks jez thanks pete thank you for listening we'll see you soon Triumph. Even managed to drop the recording machine, but it kept going.